Our scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and we'll begin reading at the verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say? that I am. And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. This far our scripture reading, and our focus will be on this passage that we read, and specifically the verses 18 and 19 dealing with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And in connection with that, I would like to read from the Heidelberg Catechism on page 64 in the back of the Psalter, Lord's Day 31, and just the question 83 and its answer. Lord's Day 31, the question 83. And there we reads, asks, What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the church, out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. This far. So, dear congregation, our, our theme for this morning is the keys that Christ, that Christ entrusts to his church. The keys that Christ entrusts to his church. And first we'll see, uh, look at the keys or the description of the keys. What are keys for? Because here, verse 19 speaks of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So what's, what's the purpose of keys? Well, keys are used to open or to close or to give access to something, or to deny access 
to let you in or to keep you out. And so keys are used to protect. You lock your home at night to protect what's inside and to keep what might be bad on the outside. And so these keys, they, they also come with an authority. They have an authority. If you think of a, a little boy who their dad, or has to be a young teenager maybe, if the dad gives him the keys to the car and says, here, go start the car, that boy is happy. He has the authority to start the car. He's allowed to start the car. But also, it also comes as a great privilege. If that child is a little older and has his driver's license, and now the father says, here, you can have the keys to my car. You can go out with your friends tonight. There's a great privilege. But it also comes with a great responsibility. And specifically, the keys referred to in the Bible, uh, it's often given to a steward, someone who has to care for the belongings of the house, of the owner. You can think of various servants in the Bible. Maybe Joseph, he was to care for Potiphar's house. He had access into every room of the house, even where his wife was. And so he had a great responsibility, and it doesn't say specifically he had keys, but no doubt it came with keys. And if you think of the cities in the olden days, they had stone walls, and they had a big gate on the front, and those gates were locked. And they say that usually the keys that came with those gates or for those gates were so big they had to have two men to carry them. And so the key really here is a symbol of authority, a symbol of responsibility for keeping the city safe. They had to open those gates to let the citizens in and out during the day so they could work in the fields. They had to close the gates at night to keep out robbers or thieves or wild animals. Or if an army came to attack the city, they have to lock the gates and to protect them. And so these keys have implications. Implications both for the person who has the keys. It's a sign of authority. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. But it has implications for the person who's standing on the other side of the gate. And if used correctly, the citizens can come through the gate freely and go out. And notice that it's not the keys that determine who the citizen is. It's not the keys that make someone a citizen, but the keys are used to let the citizens pass in and out. And if it's used correctly, those keys will close the gate to keep thieves and enemies out. And so when we speak of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, they're used to give access to the citizens of heaven. And they're to deny access to those who are not the citizens of heaven. And if properly used, these keys will communicate to you that you are a citizen of heaven, that you belong, or that you do not belong to the kingdom of heaven if you're not a citizen. And so what are those keys? Because Christ says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might have had it if you have a big ring of keys. If you stood by the door, you have to try to figure out which key it is, and you try many different keys. But even now, people are trying different ways to open the door of success, you might say, to a church. What works and what doesn't. But Christ has given His church only two keys, and these are spiritual in nature. Because in verse 20, Jesus commanded His disciples that they should tell no one that He was Jesus the Christ. And why is that? It was because the Israelites were looking for an earthly king, someone to 
deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. They wanted their own earthly kingdom again, but Christ said His kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to be an earthly king. And so the two keys that Christ gives to His church, we read there in the Heidelberg Catechism, it says they are the preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline, also interpreted as excommunication out of the Christian church. And by these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut to unbelievers. And these are the two keys used to open the gates for, you could say, freedom of access to the citizens, and they're to shut the gates to anyone who would deny Christ and deny them access to the kingdom, stating that they are unbelievers as long as they are outside of Christ. And so these keys, the only work, every key only works in its proper lock. And the key to the city gate only had one place where it was to be used, and it affected the people who wanted to come through those specific doors. And so the keys of the kingdom are used in conjunction with the church and not apart from it. And so strictly speaking, it affects really the people who come under the preaching of the gospel, as those who fall under the realm of Christian discipline. But, and those who, you would say, come to Christ the door, the, the keys of the kingdom, open or close that door to them. It's the preaching of the gospel that, that explains to them, that opens the way if they are in Christ or not. And so indirectly, it involves not only those people who come and hear the preaching but also indirectly those who remain outside, those who refuse to hear the preaching, those who deny Christ, those who would never want to come to know the Lord. They are, in effect, remain outside. But then in our second thought, we see the authority of these keys. The authority of these keys. Christ has the supreme authority because he is the one who owns these keys. He is the king of his kingdom. And in verse 19, Christ says, I will give you the keys. So it's Christ who is the one who is giving the keys because he is the one who owns them. He's the one who has given them. He's the one who gives them. And he gives it to Peter here after Peter confesses who Christ is. In verse 16, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so he, he confessed the Christ here to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah that was announced in the Old Testament. And Messiah means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, it's especially the prophets, the priests, and specifically the kings who were anointed to their office. And Peter recognizes Christ as the anointed one. He is the king of the kingdom. And so the keys are given by the authority of Christ himself. Christ who said in Matthew 28 that all power in heaven and earth is given to him. And so with that authority, Christ commanded his disciples then also to go and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that he commanded them. 
In Revelation 1, verse 18, we also see where Christ says, He says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And he says, I have the keys of hell and of death. And in Revelation 3, verse 7, he says, These are these things say, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So Christ is demonstrating that he has the supreme authority over these keys. He has the power over death and hell and the grave. And he is the one who says in verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They will not be victorious against it. But Christ's church will be the victor. And so, this is a comfort for every believer that neither, not even death can prevent a citizen from entering this kingdom. Because it's by death that you enter the reality, the, 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 the fullness of, of that kingdom. The power of Satan and all the forces of darkness it cannot stop this kingdom. It cannot stop Christ from bringing citizens into his kingdom. And so this authority of Christ is of the greatest comfort for you who believe in him. That if he through His Word, through the preaching of His Word, through the use of the sacraments and discipline, has opened that gate for you, then no one can shut that gate to His kingdom. And Christ then also has the authority to give these keys to whomever He chooses. No one can take these keys to Himself. And no child is allowed to take the keys from His parents. And no person in the kingdom is allowed to take the keys from the king. And Romans 10, 15 says, how shall they preach unless they be sent? They must be sent by Christ to use the keys. No one can enter the office of elder or deacon or minister at, the will, at their own will or at their own authority, but it must be through the church because these keys are not ours. The message is, the message is not ours. The means of discipline is not ours, but it's Christ. And we are only ambassadors, stewards, servants. And so who does Christ give the keys to? Well, the authority is given to the stewards of the keys. He says, I will give you the keys. And here he's speaking to the apostles. He gives it to the apostles first. And specifically, Christ here in this verse is speaking to Peter directly. He's speaking in the second person singular. Peter is acting as the representative here of the other apostles. But it's helpful to understand why he says that. And it's important to see who specifically Christ is giving these keys to. Because we can see first that Christ is giving these keys to an ordinary man. He says, Simon Barjona, in verse 17, or sorry, yeah, 17, he calls him Simon Barjona, and he 
or son of Jonah. He's giving it to a human being, a person who is born sinful and fallen, but one who is saved by grace through faith in Christ. He gives it here to a man who is very impulsive, as we know a lot about Peter, and who, one who is prone to sin and one who has his own weaknesses. He gives it to a man here who in no way could save himself or contribute anything to his own salvation. He gives it here to a man who certainly didn't have a, a total and complete understanding of what this kingdom of God was, because later even the, the disciples asked, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still saw it as, as, a, as a certain physical kingdom. He gives it here to a man who even opposed and hindered Christ. As we see a few verses later, that on the way to the cross, Peter tries to stop him and says, far be it from you. This will not happen to you. You won't suffer on the cross. Peter did not understand what it meant for Christ to have to die for this kingdom. He gives it here to a man who would feel the, the painful reality of his own sin when he would later deny his own Savior three times with an oath that he did not know him. But he gives it to a man who would know and feel the love of Christ for sinners, to know that forgiveness and to know that restoration by his grace as a citizen of his kingdom. But then secondly, Christ gives the keys to a spirit-filled man. Because in verse 17, Christ says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's not our human wisdom. It's not our tradition. It's not our works that can come to such a conclusion or understanding of who Christ is for sinners. But it was the Father who revealed Christ to him by the Holy Spirit. It was the Lord who opened Lydia's heart to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, Thou hast hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and have revealed them to babes. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will, wills to reveal him. It is God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, who reveals who Christ is to your heart. This person who is saved by God is filled with his Spirit. And in John 20, verse 22, Jesus said, when he sent his disciples, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And later in Acts, that was fulfilled visibly when, when Christ poured out his Holy Spirit, especially upon the apostles and the disciples there. And thirdly, then we see Christ gives these keys to a man specifically. To man in the sense that he's an earthen vessel, as Paul calls him, weak in themselves, empty in themselves, to display the power of God, a man who God uses to show his power to apostles, to human beings who are created like you and I, and nothing more, but also to men specifically because Paul says women ought not to teach or to hold the same authority in a church. And this doesn't degrade women, women, 
The Lord has his own purpose and place for men and women. That's why it's important to keep the distinction between men and women in our society. God gives great honor to women and great blessing, and he often uses them. But here in this specific instance, God has given this authority to men. But then fourthly, Christ gives the keys to a man who's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, who himself was taught to confess his faith in Christ. And Christ says, Christ says this to Peter after drawing out his faith. In verse 16, Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Christ gives these keys after confirming Peter's faith after confirming this faith was from God and not from man. And then in verse 18, Christ says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so Christ here is saying that he will build his church on the rock Peter. And this is a play on words in in the original language, because Peter's name means rock in Aramaic. In, in John 1, verse 42, Jesus said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, and you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. And so Peter's name means a stone. That's why the Lord is using this imagery to show how he's going to build his church and where he's going to build his church. Just like Jesus said, the wise man built his house upon the rock. We have to build on a solid foundation, and this is what Christ is picturing here for us. So Christ is building his church on the foundation of the apostles with Peter as a spokesperson, with Christ as the cornerstone. And now this does not mean he's building his church on human beings specifically, on who they are, but on especially their confession in Christ, on the doctrine that Christ taught them, on the fellowship of the brethren, and of the unity of the one faith in Christ. And so Christ institutes his church by his authority, beginning here with the apostles. This was the building blocks, the foundation stones of his New Testament church. Ephesians 2, verse 19 says, Now, therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so he began there with the apostles, and now Christ gives the keys of the kingdom to the office bearers of his church throughout the world. And the apostles went, after they had planted churches, they would come back later, and they would uh, ordain um, office bearers, elders and deacons, and they would be the ones to carry on that task. And so the office bearers are called the watchmen on the walls of Zion. They're the ones looking out. They're the, they're, they're the shepherds. They're the overseers. And they're there to represent Christ and to bear the office in, the, in his name. And so Christ delegates this authority to his church. And the duty of those office bearers holding those keys is to maintain the purity of the church and to maintain the glory 
of God in Zion and to instruct in the doctrine of the apostles and to administer correction if there's a straying. And so this is what we need to remember also as it's noted in your bulletin that there are, they are looking for new office bearers also in this congregation. We need to remember who, how the Lord describes them, what qualifications are required for office bearers. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 give the Lord's description of what is required. But the church is built on, the foundation, on that foundation when people receive the word and believe. The same thing is required of, of Peter and of you and I, that we believe in this one Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we see that happening in Acts 2, verse 41, where it says, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and of prayers. And so the Lord builds His church on this foundation, on this confession in Christ. But then thirdly, the function of the keys. And the function of these keys, and this being an introductory sermon to this section of the Lord's Days, is, is an overview of what these keys are. The next questions in the Lord's Days really look at what each individual does and how it works, but this is a general overview. Because in verse 19 it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it says here, whatever you bind, not whoever you bind. So this passage points us to, to what it is that we are dealing with, meaning the beliefs, the confessions, the, the life of the, of the people. We're not binding individuals specifically, but we're looking at their, their, the nature of their confession. And so the binding and loosing that uh, Matthew writes here, these are terms that were used in, in Israel, rabbinical terms, meaning forbidding and permitting. And so if a person continued to believe or to do what was forbidden, and if they refused to repent, they would be disciplined in those days. But if they repent, they'd be forgiven. And so this binding and loosing really has to do with their, their current standing in the church of, of Christ. It determines whether they are in good standing or in, in not a good standing. And if you consider where the Heidelberg Catechism deals with this, it follows immediately after the, uh, the Lord's Supper, dealing with the Lord's Supper. And the previous question asked, well, who is the Lord's Supper for? And it described that it is for those who trust in, in Christ, that are sorry for their sins, and yet believe they are forgiven through Christ. But it says, those who, but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink, judge them to themselves. They indicate they do not belong at the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord has given these keys also to help distinguish between in the hearts of the people if you do or do not belong in the Lord's kingdom. And so it's, 
It's not the office bearer's job to discern your heart or what lives within. We can only hear your confession. But the Lord uses His keys, the, the preaching of the gospel specifically, to probe your heart and to see if you are in the kingdom of heaven or not. And if your life does not match the confession that you made, then the church also needs to point that out and use the proper means to, to direct you in the right path, to direct you, to correct your life, to repent of your sins. And if a person is not willing to heed the warnings and the Word of God, then they must lock them out of that kingdom with the keys of, of discipline. And so that's why these keys must be used very carefully and be used only in accordance with God's own Word, because they are Christ's keys. For an example, there is at the border of crossing from the Dominican into Haiti, there, there's a security checkpoint, and there's long lineups, and you have to show your identity at the customs booth. But there were some guards walking around saying, well, if you pay us some money, we can take you around this back door and let you in, if you have papers or not. And so they're misusing the key of authority that they had in the country. They did not execute the authority of the keys responsibly or even according to the law of the land. But it can also happen that, in another way, a terrorist might sneak into a country and begin doing his, his, his evil work. Somehow, somebody might sneak into a country with a false passport. And so there are people who come into the church with a false passport, with a false confession. They're not actually citizens of Christ's kingdom. But sooner or later, that life can be revealed in this world, just like a terrorist will be revealed when he begins sabotaging the country or the city. And so then the keys of discipline need to be exercised. And so when you think of the intent of the keys that Christ has given, if you think of it in, in civil terms, the, the authority of the civil government is used to punish crime. They're given the power of the sword to punish evil. That's the duty of the civil government. And if a terrorist entered a country and began doing harm, they would need to be punished for that crime. But with the keys of the kingdom, it's slightly different. The primary intent of the key is not initially punishment, but to serve as a medicine. It's to serve in a corrective way, to be a, like a reforming agent to them, to correct their ways. The intent is to, to heal the sick and to restore the wounded and to bring back the wandering sheep. And so with the civil government, it first looks at punishing and then rehabilitating, but with the ecclesiastical keys, it's first to correct. And if that doesn't work, then to discipline and to, to go further. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the Scriptures are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, to lead us in the way of God's Word. And Matthew 18 also explains how we are to approach someone who is, who is erring in their way, to begin one-on-one, -on -one, begin small, begin trying to draw them back to Christ by simple words and, and interaction. And if nothing else works, then not only can we move to the second key uh, to the second door where the offender is cut off from the church 
The gate is then closed to that person, letting them know that by their own life, by their own refusal to repent, they confess that they're not actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Just like the civil government is concerned for the well-being of the country, the ecclesiastical government is concerned for the well-being of the church. It's to maintain the moral law of God. It's to glorify God. It's to maintain the purity of His church and the purity of worship in accordance with His Word. It's to promote the faith of the fellow believers and it's to correct the souls that are straying, all with the intent to bring each one back to the Lord. And so, whatever Peter, here he representing these twelve, and now ultimately whatever the church binds on earth, he says, it shall be bound in heaven. Whatever loosed on earth remains loosed in heaven. And that comes from John 20, verse 23, where it says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This does not mean that the church has the power to forgive your sins. That's an error in the Catholic Church and maybe others. If you forgive the sins of any, it says, that, that, that we are not the ones to forgive sins. That's Christ only has the power to forgive sins. But based on God's Word that is preached, the admittance to the citizens through the preaching and through the means of the church, it, it promises the forgiveness through His Word to those who rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it warns those who do not believe that they do not have that forgiveness, that they do not have the citizenship of heaven. And so the person with the key stands at the gate, so to speak, of that city, and opens it for citizens, and closes it for those who are non-citizens, so that you can discern if you are in Christ or not. And the keys of the kingdom discern who the citizens are, and assure that the gates are, are certainly open to all those who confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the intention of the preaching of the gospel, as we hear further the next time. It's to assure the people, and even the trembling ones, that when they come to Christ in faith, to God in faith through Christ, that the doors are open to them. And that promise is also conveyed to them in baptism and the Lord's Supper, that assuredly as those who trust in Him, their sins are washed away. But at the same time, it bars out anyone whose lives reveal by their sin that they are not forgiven by Christ's blood. And they assure all unbelievers that if you do not truly repent of your sins, that you do not truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that as long as you remain in that condition in your life, those doors of heaven will be closed. Those are the keys that Christ has given to His church to communicate to you if you have an open access where Christ says, I've opened a door and no man can shut it, or I've shut the door and no man can open it. And He reveals through His Word how that is. And it is for you to discern through the preaching. If those doors in Christ are open to you by faith, 
by grace through faith, or if by your life, by your heart, you know that those doors are still closed because you have never rested in Christ alone. And so it is for you to turn to him even today that those doors may be swung open because God says, and as Paul put it, be reconciled to God even today because Christ has opened a way of access for all those who would come through him. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the, the narrow way through whom we must be saved. And so these keys that he has given to his church are the preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline, which we hope to look at more closely in the coming weeks. Amen.